So today's passage is in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 to 21, and you can find this, page 1139. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to have you with us this morning. And if you're a visitor or someone new, a particular welcome from me. I want to start by looking back to the beginning of the 19th century when a young man deserted from the French army and he was sentenced to death. And his mother came to Napoleon, the general, Napoleon Bonaparte, and pleaded for her son's life. And Napoleon said, he does not deserve mercy. And the mother said, if he deserved it, it wouldn't be mercy. And I think there's something in all of us that thinks that people should get what they deserve. I I want my rights. I want what I deserve. But what do we deserve? Is your conscience squeaky clean? Have you lived the sinless life that God demands? Someone has said, do you really want nothing but totally effective, instantaneous judgment? Then go to hell. And the good news of the gospel is that God gives us not what we deserve. God gives us what Jesus deserves. If you're a Christian, you're united with Jesus And you get what Jesus deserves. And then that grace and that mercy changes you forever. And life is never the same again. And that's the gospel. Now chapters 1 to 11 of Romans, which we looked at a number of months ago, they were a great exposition of the doctrine of salvation. And now we're looking at the last five chapters of of Romans where Paul is setting out what that doctrine should mean, how it should work out in our lives. When we learn doctrine, that's not just an intellectual thing. We shouldn't just be asking, do I understand this? But also, what difference does this make? How is this going to affect how I live? In other words, not just what, but so what? 
If chapters 1 to 11 of Romans are the what, then chapters 12 to 16 are the so what. Here's what God has done, chapters 1 to 11. What that's, what's that going to mean? And chapter 12 starts, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of God's grace and mercy to you, if you're a Christian, live gracious and merciful lives as his children. And in in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8, Paul has been describing the church as a body. And everyone in the body has gifts to use for the goods of other people. And now he goes on to spell that out in more detail, more practical detail. And the first thing he says here in verse 9 is love must be sincere. Love your Christian family. And love must be sincere, not a pretense, something genuine. It's possible for love to be nothing more than a show, just to be nice on a Sunday at church. Just a superficial smile, just a gesture. It's possible to give the impression that you love somebody and all along you're just hoping they might do something for you. I read, I can't remember where I read it, about a little boy, I think in Holland, who crawled out onto a frozen lake and rescued his playmate who'd fallen through the ice. And everyone was saying what a brave little boy he was and what a wonderful thing he'd done. And one lady asked him, tell us, how were you so brave as to risk your life to save your little friend? And between gasps for a breath, the boy replied, I had to. He had my skates on. That's not love. That's self-interest. But Paul says, verse 9, love must be sincere. And the word for love here in verse 9 is an important word. It's the word agape. And all the way through all the chapters of Romans, all 11 chapters up to here, this word agape has only been used of God and his love. But now here we are told to show this sort of love to each other. And I want us to just spend a few moments looking at Christian love because everything else in chapter 12 flows out of that. There are three words for love in the New Testament. There's eros, that means romantic love. That's where we get our English word erotic and it's used for for love as what I get out of it. And then there's filio, which means love for your family, love for your friends, love which is for mutual benefit. But this word agape means love that wants the best for the person loved. It's love which gives. It's God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's agape. This, is, this agape love isn't love blinded by passion. And it isn't love that wants something back, because that's really self-love. Agape is God-like love. Not love provided you do something for me. Not love if. Not love in response to something you already did for me. That's love because. This is just love for its own sake. Not love if. Not love because. Love Full stop. Love with no agenda. Love with no discernible reason. 
And often it isn't going to be a dramatic, showy thing. It's a way of life. It's often something behind the scenes. Sometimes what the poet Wordsworth called our little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Not frothy emotion. Not saying nice things to flatter people. This is a hard-headed commitment to the well-being of the person loved. Even when that's tough. And that's what makes Christian love so different from what passes for love in the world. Proverbs 27 says this, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Doing the best for someone, even when that might mean rebuking them or criticizing them. Someone has paraphrased it by saying, A friend is someone, a true friend is someone who stabs you in the front That's the sort of friend you want. Well, Paul goes on in verse 9. Hate what is evil. And maybe we think, well, it's a bit strange to talk about hate and love in the same breath. But it isn't. Love isn't blind sentimentality. Love is opposed to anything which threatens the well-being of the one loved. And the language Paul uses here is so much stronger than any of our English translations. Literally, Paul says, wrench yourself away from evil and glue yourself to love, to what is good. Paul isn't making a cool-headed moral assessment. These are violent words, a visceral hatred of evil and a passionate attachment to good. Is that how you feel? Are you appalled by evil and committed to good, to godliness? Or are you possibly one of those Christians who sees how like the world you can be and still call yourself a Christian? Pray, ask God to help you to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates. And as Paul goes on in verse 10... Be devoted to one another in love. He changes the word for love. This is Philadelphia. It's brotherly love. Paul is making the point that as Christians, we're family. We're to be committed to each other as brothers and sisters. Way back in the 1970s, I'm that old, way back in the 1970s, there was a group called the Hollies who released a song called He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. There's a line in the song that says, his welfare is my concern. Now, isn't that something we need to hear in our individualistic society? That's how it's to be in the church. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. She's my sister. Pastor of the church I used to belong to in Edinburgh used to say often, the love we have for one another is the exact love we have for the Lord Jesus. You cannot separate the head of the church from the body. So perhaps we need to ask this morning, do we love each other like that at City? Paul says in verse 10, Honour one another above yourselves. It's looking out for the interests of others. It's the exact opposite of the, of the assertiveness, a self-assertion we see everywhere in the world around us. 
You know, it's one of the very first things you see when someone becomes a Christian, I think. They stop telling you about themselves and they start asking about you. A shift from self-love to family love. And this sort of family love, this sort of real community is something the world is longing for and doesn't have. How we love each other makes a real impact on unbelievers who come to the church. We just take it for granted. But in the world, it's something remarkable. Well, Paul goes on, verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. I wonder if you're here and and you were an energetic and enthusiastic Christian when you were saved. But now, maybe you're growing a little bit over-familiar with the gospel. Maybe you're in danger of losing the first love you had for for Jesus and other Christians. The root of this word zeal here is, is hurry. Hurry. Wasn't that what it was like when you were a new Christian? You couldn't wait to come to church on Sunday. You hurried. You, you delighted to read the Bible. You, you loved spending time with other Christians. You hurried to do these things. You were zealous. And now, well, now we still know that Christian fellowship is important, but maybe you're not just quite so excited about it. Well, Paul says, stir yourself up. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And the heart of this, this little triplet is joyful in hope. Joyful because you know the wonderful inheritance that's going to be yours in glory. Patience because you know you have to wait for it. And prayerful, asking God to get you there. Someone has said, to live without hope is like playing football without goalposts. But Christians have a living hope, joyful, patient, faithful, eyes fixed on the glorious future. It makes all the difference. It changes how you think about everything. It reorientates your priorities. As Christians, we're looking at the now in the light of the not yet. Someone has said, Christians live in the present in the light of the future which Jesus secured in the past. That's hope. Living in the presence, in the light of the future, which Jesus secured in the past. Our concern should be not so much things, because we're going to lose them all in the end. Our concern should be much more about people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, with whom we're going to share eternity. Paul says in verse 13, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So many people in this world love things and use people. Not Christians. We're to love people and use things. Flies in the face of our selfish society. Christians look after each other. We're family. Luther once said, if our goods are not available to the community, it's a Christian community he's talking about, if our goods are not available to the community, then they're stolen goods. You remember what they did in the early church? No one claimed any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. 
That's not to say possessions are wrong. Doesn't mean Christians should be communists. But we are to look after each other. We're committed to God's people. Here's the command to God's Old Testament people in Deuteronomy. There need be no poor people among you. There need be no poor people among you. It's quite a challenge, isn't it? This isn't unbelievers that Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the people of God. And perhaps we need sometimes just to take a step back and, and pause and, and re-examine ourselves as a church and think what help should we be giving to Christians in need around the world. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Most of us are not in material need, but there are millions of our brothers and sisters around the world who are. And closer to home, Paul says, practice hospitality. Literally, he says, practice love of strangers. That's what he says. It's nice to have your mates around for a meal, but Paul is talking about people on the fringes of the church, people we don't know, people who are newcomers. And, and practice hospitality is literally pursue love of strangers. Pursue love of strangers. Go out of your way to look after them. And that's a big ask in a church-like city with so many visitors and so many people coming and going and leaving and coming back. But that's what Paul tells us to do. And as we go on verse 14, maybe it feels a little bit out of place. Bless those who persecute you. Paul's going to write about relationships with unbelievers in a moment. But bless here means speak well of. It's easy to gossip about people we find awkward, isn't it? Bless them, says Paul. Really, Paul, bless them? Well, Paul repeats it, doesn't he? He says it twice. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse. Jesus said exactly the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will treat you. Well, Paul will have more to say about non-Christians in a moment. But now in verse 15, he's addressing Christians again. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Sometimes that's easy and sometimes not so easy. Sometimes it takes a great deal of grace. You passed your exam and I failed it. You got a job, and I don't. You're getting married, but I'm still single. You have children, but we can't. But I'm genuinely happy about what God has done for you. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Love them with this agape love that wants the best for them, even if you're struggling. And it seems to me that it's only Christians who can really do that. Only if the success or the job or the marriage or the family or so on are not an idol, are not the most important thing in your life, because Jesus is the most important thing in your life. And then Paul says, mourn with those who mourn. And let's be perfectly honest 
People who are mourning aren't fun to be with, are they? And maybe we're tempted to think, well, probably they'd rather be alone. And, and what am I going to say? And, and I don't want to be made sad. And it's easier to stay away. And then you add loneliness to their mourning. Mourn with those who mourn doesn't mean having answers to what's happened. It doesn't mean having clever explanations. Often you don't need to say very much at all. Just being there is enough. person knows you care. Someone has written, as in a body, the pain of one member is the pain of all. If you smash your finger with a hammer, you may just as well exclaim, I hurt my finger or I hurt myself. It's the same thing. There's an old saying from the southern United States, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And that could apply to us as a church, couldn't it? We are are cemented together in our joys and our sorrows. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. And then Paul goes on. Live in harmony with everyone. Literally, he says, think the same as one another. After all, we're children in God's family. We, We share the same father. We love the same son. We're headed for the same destination. Shouldn't that overcome every other difference? That's the the context in which we're to think about everything. Heaven forbid that we should be slow to love people who are different from us. And we we have to be realistic. At City, many of us are university educated and middle class. So let's be sure we hear what Paul is saying to us here in verse 16. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. A couple of years ago, one of our previous MTs went to celebrate his grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary. And his grandmother said this said, me and Bill are basically incompatible, but the gospel keeps us together. Exactly. For 50 years, agape love. Now, in verses 17 to 21, Paul has something to say about unbelievers, and in particular, about those who who seek to do us harm. And the word for evil in verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil, It's not just about something bad someone does. This is about people who are evil in character. And it's about non-Christians. And when someone does us harm in some way, the knee-jerk response is to lash out, isn't it? That's what human nature naturally does. Left to ourselves, we say, if someone injures me, I'll do something worse to them. Punch my nose, I'll break your leg. And the Old Testament sought to limit that, to put brakes on the escalation of revenge. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. That's what the Old Testament said. Let the punishment fit the crime. But then Jesus came and he went a whole lot further than the Old Testament. Not the the leapfrogging escalation of revenge, And not the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And we don't find that easy. 
I mean, we don't, do we? The boxer Muhammad Ali once said, I'm a fighter. I believe in the eye for an eye business. I'm no cheek turner. I got no respect for a man who won't hit back. You kill my dog, you better hide your cat. But here's what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. And that's what Paul is saying to us here. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Love your Christian family and love your enemies. Paul isn't just saying refrain from, refrain from taking revenge. He's saying in verse 18, as far as it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Try to turn your enemy into your friend. And it may not be possible Paul says, as far as it depends on you, some people want nothing to do with Christians, and, the, and that's not your fault. But, but let's be honest. When we've been wronged, it's not easy to just let it go. We, we, we instinctively want some, some comeback. Well, of course we do. We're made in the image of God, and God is just. But we can have complete confidence in God's justice. Here's what Jim Packer has said. Retribution is the inescapable moral law of creation. God will see that each man and woman sooner or later receives what they deserve. If not here, then hereafter. Are we happy with that? Are we confident that justice will be done? If you follow the news, you'll know that back in August, an American financier, a man called Jeffrey Epstein, he was all over the news. He was in prison in a metropolitan correction center in New York for alleged sex trafficking of minors. And he managed to hang himself in prison. And one of Epstein's victims responded angrily, and she said, we have to live with the scars of his actions for the rest of our lives while he will never face the consequences of the crimes he committed. But she was wrong. She was wrong. Epstein hasn't escaped justice by hanging himself. On the contrary, he's catapulted himself into the presence of his judge. No one escapes God's justice. And when Paul says in verse 19... Do not take revenge. Literally, it's do not avenge yourself. We're not the judge. God is the judge. Do not revenge yourself, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay. As Christians, we are able to forgive. We are able to let it go because we know that justice will finally be done. So if something really awful happens, if someone molests your little daughter or sells drugs to your best friend and you just say, I forgive them without the certainty that they'll have to give account to God, it's really saying it doesn't matter. 
But as Christians, we are convinced that justice will be done. And so we can let it go. Do not take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. I will repay, says the Lord. And then in verse 20, Paul quotes from Proverbs. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And this sounds like a picture of punishment, but in fact, in the ancient world, there was a ritual in which someone would carry burning coals on their head as a sign of repentance. Love your enemies. And maybe that love will surprise them, shock them, shame them, and lead them to repentance. After all, if you're a Christian, that's what Jesus did for you, right? While we were still sinners, Paul wrote in Romans, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Is this something you need to hear? Despite what you're like, despite how you've lived, God loves you with an agape love and sent his son to die in your place, taking the blame for all your efforts to live your life as if God didn't exist. And for us as Christians, if you curse the wrongdoer, if you repay evil for evil, if you take revenge, then these are evil responses to evil and you've been, you've been sucked in. You've been defeated. To repay evil with evil is to be overcome by evil. To repay good for evil is to overcome evil with good. The soldier who deserted from Napoleon's army was executed. His mother's plea for mercy fell on deaf ears. But God's extraordinary mercy will save you if you trust Jesus. God's extraordinary agape love, despite what you're like, will bring you to glory if you trust Jesus. And it will transform your life in this world so you show mercy to others. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's take a moment's quiet to think about that, and then I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your agape love for us. That when our hearts were set against you, you sent your only son to die for us so that we could be your children. (coughs) Help us to live lives that show that we belong to you, that show the likeness of you, our Heavenly Father, as we show unconditional love, first of all to our brothers and sisters in in our family here in the church, and secondly to those round about us in the hope that they will be brought up short and will also come into your kingdom. Heavenly Father, help us 
to be diligent in loving each other when that costs something. And Father, help us to love each other as the Lord Jesus loved us. Amen.